Hello, uh, this is Janusz. Uh, before we start the interview, I would just like to say that uh, I managed to found a uh, charity that uh, supports the Hazra in these difficult times. They have been going through uh, various many troubles, as uh, many Mongols are familiar with, um, ranging from mass killings to just uh, terrible neglect by the Afghan government in general. And I just decided to put this charity out there so that we can get the word out and uh, hopefully get some help to the poor uh, Hazar people of Afghanistan. Uh, the link will be in the show notes. And please just go there. And if you have money, just donate and make sure that the Hazra uh, survive as much as they can. Thank you and have a good day. Hello, uh, this is Janusz. Uh, before we start the interview, I would just like to say that uh, I managed to found a uh, charity that uh, supports the Hazra in these difficult times. They have been going through uh, various many troubles, as uh, many Mongols are familiar with, um, ranging from mass killings to just uh, terrible neglect by the Afghan government in general. And I just decided to put this charity out there so that we can get the word out and uh, hopefully get some help to the poor uh, Hazra people of Afghanistan. Uh, the link will be in the show notes, and please just go there, and if you have money, just donate and make sure that the Hazra uh, survive as much as they can. Thank you, and have a good day. Hello, and welcome to the Mongols Podcast. I'm your host, Sam I. J. Morgenstern, and uh, on the this episode of the Mongols Podcast, we are welcoming a new guest onto the show, a journalist by the name of Bayara. Uh, my name is Baira, and uh, I live in Ulaanbaatar, the capital city of Mongolia. Degree in uh, journalism and master's degree in uh, sports management, which I obtained uh, in Russia. And uh, recently, I started my YouTube channel covering uh, topics about uh, Mongol Mongol people living around the world and uh, tradition, culture, and the customs of. Uh, that's awesome and the, the big reason why I wanted to bring Bayer on to show because I think he does a very good job of covering Mongolia in the present and while it is very awesome to cover Mongolia's past as I do we must eventually use that past to understand Mongolia's present and I think it would be much better to have a much closer person on the ground for that sort of thing so I was looking for that sort of future coverage, but then I ran into one of your posts on Facebook and I was like, maybe we should talk sometime. And as some would say, the rest is history. And now we're going to uh, begin with the interview real quick. So as for the first question of our interview, uh, what inspired you to cover Mongolia in your journalism? So I used to work for uh, Mongolian National uh, Broadcasting, which is a uh, equivalent of uh, Japan's NHK and uh, China's uh, CCTV and uh, Great Britain's BBC. It's a state-funded uh, television. And while I was working there, I noticed that uh, the media, mainstream media, is uh, heavily censored and very biased, and it has a certain agenda setting start my own channel so that uh, 
uh, regular everyday ordinary people can have uh, express their opinion without you know the uh, bias and uh, censorship. So my uh, mission and my goal is to give this uh, ordinary, ordinary Mongolians a voice to the world and so that I can promote my country, my culture, my tradition to the uh, people living around the world, give the accurate, uh, accurate uh, idea of uh, people living in Mongolia. When uh, people think of Mongolia, they just uh, buildings, all buildings and uh, modern uh, uh, technology, but we are actually uh, everything that uh, other countries have, but we are very mixed with uh, tradition and the modern aspect. So I wanted to give the accurate uh, information, accurate uh, image of our country to the world. That's awesome. And I think that's extremely fascinating because uh, if you ever look at the way uh, I've gone into uh, I've gone into the internet, uh, I tend to try to find as much independent coverage as possible because uh, the U.S. media is notoriously unreliable on many many things, and so it's always best to try to find um, whoever you like and and uh, maybe do a bit of fact checking at the very least. But I think. No, I, but I think judging from what I've seen on your content, and I've been uh, going through it for the past couple of days, and I think I can trust you, and I can trust you a lot. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So uh, that brings into uh, my second question. Uh, what topics do you typically discuss in an average day uh, at work or in the field? So currently I'm not working for a television uh, because I left them about a year ago and uh, started my own project, which is this YouTube channel called Real Mongolia. I also do uh, other freelance jobs such as translating. Uh, this year I, I just uh, set my goal to cover the various aspects of uh, uh, our Mongolia, Mongolian people. So typically uh, my uh, my goal is to. So, I've been uh, trying to interview uh, Mongol people living around the world for the last few weeks. So I posted a, I posted a, like a post on Facebook that I'm looking for other people who are interested in interviewing and also a comic and uh, also Kalmyk people and Buryat people and Tua people in Russia. So. I've been trying to interview a lot Mongolian Mongol people living around the world so that, uh, so that I can get back with uh, a good opinion of Mongol people about our nation. Uh, that's obviously a very fascinating sort, uh, sort of way to get into the arena, as I would say. And what really fascinates me about that is that in many ways it kind of makes me relate to my own experience a bit as a Hungarian because because they're but obviously on a much smaller scale because the the Mongols have been probably in a sort of uh, unplanned diaspora ever since uh, Genghis Khan uh, began his conquests and 
that often makes you think, in a way, because uh, the Hungarian diaspora was definitely a response to some form of imperialist aggression, and and in our case, it was the Soviet Union, and obviously that led to a lot of different sorts of stories all over the world because we have to get we are suddenly out of the homeland and we are. So, and we are suddenly put into a new culture, and sometimes that often is an incentive to get us to assimilate. I can definitely uh, see this among some of my own fellow Hungarians. Most of most Hungarians, at least in my Akron area, are not very fluent in the language, if at all. And very few have experienced the culture. Although, if you actually get a little closer to Cleveland, uh, that's a totally different story entirely. Uh -huh. So... I met the, the ambassador, uh, Hungarian ambassador to Mongolia, and she speaks fluent Mongolian, and I was very impressed. And she was speaking better Mongolian than any other foreign person I've ever met. And so, and after that meeting, I we talked about our history and our similar aspects, our culture, and since then, I my uh, my interest in Hungarian culture increased, and I. When I, from what I'm aware, the Hungarian people are also very good at the horse, you know, and archery is very similar to our culture because Hungarian plants, it's similar to Mongolian plants, and because of that, we have a similar culture, horse culture, and uh, this uh, warrior nation. So my, uh, my, interest in, my interest in Hungarian culture increased after meeting uh, the, the minister. Yeah, I can get that because, like, one of the th things that I, I encountered very early on about um, step culture was actually uh, the the um, the person I like to call the man, the myth, the legend, uh, Kashai Lajos. He is actually a Hungarian. He and he lives on the plains, basically as close as a Nurmagyar as you can get. Yeah. And he teaches mounted archery, as far as I know, very well. I think he was even involved in a couple of movie consultings. And I actually got introduced to uh, his work uh, when uh, John Mann was actually visiting Hungary for his uh, biography on Attila the Hun. And that's always uh, been a spotlight in my heart because it's like, we haven't been interacting with Sep culture for hundreds of years. And now in a way we're having in some ways, a, at least a little bit of a revival, if you will. So if you come to Mongolia and ask a random person about Attila the Hun, uh, most of them will say that he is a Mongolian. So we consider him as our part of our history. And uh, so uh, I think there is a strong connection between Hungarians and Mongolians in terms of history and culture. Yeah, that's that sounds really awesome. And that kind of make, it brings a little bit into our next question. Uh, so Mongolia has been affected by the pandemic like many other nations. How do you think the country has been affected by COVID-19, and what do you think of the Ulaanbaatar's government's response to it? Yeah, we've been affected as much as other countries uh, because of the lockdowns and also the border closures. Our uh, economy has been badly hit, especially uh, small and the middle enterprises. They were the, uh, hit the hardest, and, and uh, many a small and businesses uh, are shut their uh, door. Um, so, because 
because we are bordered by two big countries, China, and we depend on a huge impact on our economy and also people's uh, standard of living. And in terms of the uh, total cases, we have uh, uh, 1,300 cases and 19 deaths, which sounds uh, small in compared to other countries, but if you consider our population, which is only uh, 3 million, this number is not that small. And uh, especially this uh, last March has been a very uh, difficult because the total number of cases has been increased uh, almost 50% in the last uh, March. And uh, actually, starting from tomorrow, we're going to be under lockdown for two weeks. And uh, people have been rushifying things uh, like there's been chaos all day today, and there's a lot of traffic. And uh, this is the fourth, uh, fourth lockdown since uh, November, last November. Uh, because until last November, we had no uh, like uh, local transmit local transmitted cases, only like a case from abroad coming from people coming from abroad. And but in November 11th, uh, our first uh, community transmitted case was uh, discovered, and then everything like went to chaos. And um, also, there's a uh, vaccines have vaccinations have started. Uh, because we are close to China and Russia, uh, Sputnik and the Russian, Russian vaccine and uh, Chinese vaccine, I forgot the name, uh, Sinopharm, is uh, widely, widely available. And people have started uh, receiving their vaccines. Um, but uh, I, I'm not yet because I wanted to wait for a little bit. So, yeah, the economy is badly hit and uh, yeah, tourism, especially the tourism sector, is in a better hit. And also, I feel bad for the school children because since last like uh, February, they have been studying uh, via distant learning methods, and uh, I'm just I just feel for bad for the school children. That's that's uh, that sums up. Yeah. Yeah, I can totally get that because. Uh... The school children have been having their own measured difficulties over in the U.S. And we keep on desperately trying to get them back into school, unfortunately, before we even know it's safe. I guess it's just a symptom of America that we tend to uh, wean off our young and wean off our old. And then we just uh, let the rich have more fun in some ways. <laughs> yeah. Also, the tourism industry is very... Uh important for our economy because uh, our economy is heavily uh, dependent on like, agriculture and you know the agriculture and uh, nomadic pastoralism and tourism is very important so uh, less tourism is very bad for our economy. Yeah, that can be definitely very difficult. <laughs> yeah, and Actually, uh, your discussion of like uh, Mongolia being uh, influenced by its neighbors, it kind of brings very much into our next question. Uh, much of Mongolia's foreign policy is based on it being bordered by China and Russia. How does the country deal with being bordered by these two nations? Yeah, it's a long history. Historically, <laughs> uh, every, every part of our history is uh, 
is uh, like a conflict between these uh, two nations. For example, when Soviet Union emerged, uh, we become the Soviet the satellite state in uh, 1921. And for uh, about 70 years, until 1990, we were under Soviet uh, communist system. And we were heavily dependent on the Soviet Union and the other uh, Eastern Bloc countries. And other countries, other uh, relations, foreign relations was like uh, no, no existent because uh, the Soviet Union was like uh, controlling everything from the economy, trade, and everything was uh, totally in control of Soviet Union leaders. And uh, after 1990, uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, things got changed and uh, the Chinese influence started to grow and uh, people started to travel and they started to bring goods from China and other countries. But we, uh, we have only two neighbors. This is like this is the most biggest uh, biggest uh, no. reason why we are still underdeveloped, and uh, so we are a landlocked country. So everything happens. We have to like depend on China or Russia, and uh, people's opinion have been divided uh, whether we have to rely on Russia or whether we have to rely on China. And uh, of course, historically we have been. Have a, we, have, we can have a very uh, like a bad relationship with uh, China because of our history. So people's attitude towards China is kind of negative, general attitude. So uh, the Russian influence, because of the Russian 80 years of Russian influence, uh, people tend to like uh, rely on most people's people opinion is positive towards Russia, and uh, especially since our new president is very close with uh, Russia and Putin. So it's very complicated, but uh, it's kind of the shift, it's kind of shifting in the last uh, 20 years since the collapse of Soviet Union. So the Chinese influence is growing and growing in the last 20, 20 years. Uh, yeah. Well, I've always found it very interesting that in many ways that China does its best to, in many ways, become a juggernaut of history, but in ways that uh, don't uh, that don't necessarily go to full on imperialist expansion, but it's much more of an application of what I think would be called a soft power, if you will. Like it manages to leverage its culture, its trading connections, its re the fertile resources that are often associated with the place, and that really leads to a lot of influences in different places. And I think what really fascinates me coming from uh, your perspective is that you have to in many ways uh figure out a way to balance between moscow and beijing like try to figure out like how how to how to work with putin sometimes and maybe and maybe putin doesn't have the best day in the world which often happens and on the other end you have uh you have to figure out how things are going with xi jinping and his administration and I find that very interesting because in the mainstream media on my end, uh, we are often lied to about them so many times. Like, I remember, like, I don't know how many times I've probably heard from the mainstream media about uh, Alexei Navalny being poisoned. And honestly, considering uh, what I know about him, it's 
it's kind of disconcerting the people, the things that people in on my side of the ocean actually believe. <laughs> yeah. So, if you have only two neighbors, you have to uh, keep good relationship with the both of them, right? So, but uh, in, in historical terms, you know, you know, throughout our history, uh, we've been under the influence of uh, like Chinese dynasties, dynasties, and then the uh, Russian empires so it's been very like a it's been like a power if you are really like a between these two big nations who tries to build the influence so it's like a power play like a game it's like a big a great game a great game oh my goodness it it, it kind of makes me think of all the <laughs> The times that Russia and Britain uh, tried to spend uh, not conquering Afghanistan uh, a couple hundred years ago, am I right? Yeah. So, uh, what I. Uh, so, unless uh, these two nations decided to go with war each other, we are safe. But uh, in terms of like a soft power, you know, the lobbying and everything, it's a constant struggle, constant like a political agenda. They, it's very complicated. I can see that, which uh, kind of brings me into the next big branch of Chinese influence, um, the Belt and Road Initiative, which I like to describe often as uh, a more purposeful development of a sort of Silk Road and China's uh, version of the Marshall Plan. And it is very likely to have a major impact on Eurasia. How do you think it will affect Mongolia? As for the Belt and Road Initiative, I don't really know much about it. It's been on the media uh, uh, last few years, but uh, things have been like uh, stopped since the COVID. And uh, there's like pipeline or something like that. So I don't really know much about it. Maybe we can skip it. I see, I see. And with uh, a decent amount of the serious questions out of the way, I thought we'd get into something a bit more uh, enjoyable on your end. Uh, of all the stories that you have covered in Mongolia, what is the one that you have had the most enjoyment covering? Yeah, when I was working uh, at, uh, at MNB World, I was a, actually a sports journalist. So most of, most of the sports videos on my channel is actually from that time. And uh, uh, for sport is my passion. I've been following sports since like young since I was in high school and uh, but uh, my one, one of my also biggest passion is uh, to learn about Mongol people around the world and also the history of uh, World War One, World War Two, and uh, also how the Mongolia is uh, like uh, played part in it you know because we uh, we helped Soviet Union with the materials during the World War Two, and also we fought against uh, Imperial Japan uh, in Haufingholm. So my, my passion is about uh, mostly about history of the Mongol people, especially in, since like the 19th, uh, the start of the uh, 20th century. The last last hundred years was like uh, uh, everything turned upside down. The, uh, the great empires turned into states and everything changed. So, I have a passion for uh, history and culture of people. Uh, what I enjoy the most is, uh, I think, in, uh, interviewing uh, Mongol, Mongol people. For example, like 
I interviewed, I interviewed Hazara people, and also I'm finally to interview all the other Mongol people. For example, uh, in, in Mongolia, there's a Mongol people. Also in Russia, there's a Tua and Buryat and Kalmyk people. And also even in uh, Xinjiang, China, there's a um, Mongol group of people. So I enjoy like interviewing all these uh, Mongol related people. And so I can hear this, I can get their uh, impression of our history and what they're thinking about that. Pan-Mongolic movement, you know, the solidarity of all uh, Mongol people, something like that. So I want to do more videos about this uh, solidarity of Mongol people. I'm, a, I'm kind of a patriotic person. <laughs> I can get that. It's it, And I think in many ways, uh, the Mongols have every right to be patriotic about their nation. They're, they are, in many ways, uh, the beginning of how the world is in some ways because we started this, we started much of the modern world with the interconnect, with being interconnected by various trade routes. And many of these trade routes were opened up and protected by the Mongols. Admittedly, the, how the Mongols got into control of these trade routes was a, not necessarily on the nice side, but the thing is, trade routes are a very valuable thing and quite possibly more powerful than any army. And I think, well, you don't come across those very easily. And so, obviously, that means that when when you when you get into any sort of way to control them, you get in. You not only have to do a lot to keep them on control, but in many ways, they will do a lot to create some form of wealth for your country. And obviously that has led to a lot of us being connected with the world. And I think in many ways we have to, we have your people to think for how the world is and in a really good way, not, not necessarily blame people for pandemic and stuff, but it's more of, we have modern world and trade routes, partly because the Mongols decided that maybe we should uh, protect the trade and tax it a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, I read a lot about Tea Road and the Silk Road and the, the connection system and trade system that our ancestors have in, introduced. And uh, yeah, it's been a big change for uh, we, we, we our, our ancestors created a lot of changes, a lot, a lot of changes into the world's uh, history. Um, also, uh, it since the 13th century and 14th century, there's like a lot of uh, infighting, infighting between the descendants of Genghis Khan. And I'm also very interested in like a post Mongol Empire, this fragmentation. And for example, the Golden Horde, the Ilkhanate, and the Yuan Dynasty. So uh, the Genghis Khan's four sons uh, inherited the Genghis Khan's empire and then it become like separate empires, separate Khanates. So, and then the gold, for example, Golden Horde was uh, was ruled by this uh, Khans and uh, the Russian Russians, now Russians, the uh, Rus were like Moscow was like direct the subject of the Mongol Khans, something like that. So, it, there's a lot of to read, and uh, uh, the the impact of our descendants is huge, and it, it's it's gonna be like a lot of. Uh, time to take out this <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah and I thought that's very uh, important and fascinating but 
And that makes you think like, because one of the things I've, I've been doing is like, I've been sort of having a sort of series of covering of the various uh, divisions of the Mongol Empire. I've actually spent my last uh, couple of uh, weeks uh, trying to uh, find good research on the Chagatides. Uh, and that's been uh, quite the and that's been quite the rabbit hole. It's gotten me to, it's got me uh, through uh, looking at uh, some of the descendants of uh, Timur, since they tried to do their best to at least look like de facto rulers of the area. And of course, they there is the there is the fact that they quite surprisingly uh, outlasted basically every other Mongol Hanate in room, which is. Quite impressive considering the sheer amount of infighting. I, I think I actually had a research paper on this uh, way back in my undergrad, although that was before I really got into uh, Mongol history on the level that I knew where to find my primary sources. So that I, I think in many ways I, I wouldn't mind if I had to do that research paper over. <laughs> yeah. So that after the Chinggis Khan died, uh, his four sons inherited. Uh, for uh, separate canapes and there's a lot of stuff happened after that and from 13th century until like 19th century but most of the people don't know about don't know about it they just know that Genghis Khan great empire and then after the presentation actually uh, I'm kind of impressed uh, uh, by the fact that you mentioned the Mandohaya queen because uh, most of the people outside Mongolia don't know about her but uh, there are a lot of actually uh, queens and female warriors in Mongolian history who has uh, played a large role in uh, history, Mongolian history, and and so I want I just wish that uh, more people recognize uh, female warriors. And... There's a uh, Ano Khatan, uh, Queen, uh, who is a uh, was a wife of the Kalkambash. It was happened in the 15th century, and there's a lot of like a, a Mongolia at that time. Mongolia was uh, divided uh, between uh, West Mongol and Eastern Mongol. So there's uh, infighting between Western and Eastern, and then uh, the Chinese uh, Empire took advantage of that and just uh, assimilated two empires using that infighting. So that's kind of stuff is very interesting. Yeah, I can get that. And also your discussion of women warriors kind of brings a smile to my face, not only because I'm familiar with the story of Manduhai, but I believe uh, some people, especially if they look a bit into Marco Polo, are more familiar with the most famous undefeated wrestler of all time in Mongolia, uh, Kutlun, if I recall. And uh, obviously she, she's got quite the story, <laughs> as I've discussed on previous episodes of my podcast. <laughs> yeah. A lot of uh, historical movies based on the, uh, our ancestors. For example, the, we have like uh, two, three movies about Genghis Khan. But there's also a very uh, famous movie about Mandukhan uh, with uh, three, three parts. And uh, but recently, uh, historical movies have been made a lot with uh, foreign productions help and everything. So. I also I suggest to watch these movies if for someone who is interested in our history. Yeah. I'll definitely have to think about that. I I think I did find and uh, some clips of of uh, the movie on Manduhai. I actually haven't looked into it yet, but I'm definitely going to have to give a reaction to it since uh, 
I'm the guy who uh, tries to talk about her online nonstop as much as I can. <laughs> Is it, does it have a subtitle? I, I think it does. I'm, I'm not fully sure that. It's, I haven't checked out it in a little while. Um, and actually, that the discussion of media does um, bring us into uh, our next interview question. I noticed that uh, many of your videos uh, cover popular sports and games amongst the Mongols. Obviously, you mentioned that a lot of this uh, came from your time with uh, MNB. And uh, how do you think the sports scene in Mongolia functions, especially with the ongoing pandemic? Yeah. The uh, sports, uh, sports sector in Mongolia is actually revolved around uh, four Olympic sports. So one is uh, judo and shooting and boxing and uh, free wrestling. So the reason why we call this uh, four top sports because uh, we have Olympic medals in these four sports. So Olympic, Olympic medals and Olympic games is very huge deal. In our country. Is it? Yeah, yeah, it's working. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the Olympic Games medals is very huge deal in Mongolia, actually. Uh, for if, if someone wins Olympic medal, he is entitled, he or she is entitled to receive a lifetime allowance for his whole life. And uh, so everybody wants to win Olympic medal. It's uh, for Olympic medals, winners are like a, a superstarized team. So uh, because we are very good at the boxing, uh, the, this this four sport is very huge, popular, and uh, also we have our traditional sports, which is uh, horse racing and archery, and of course wrestling. So we call this. Uh, uh, three mainly sports and our traditional festival is actually based on these uh, three sports so if you come to Mongolia in July uh, you will, uh, you will uh, experience the Mongol Nabon and the Mongol three mainly sports as oh. for the current situation yeah as for the current situation right now the sports sector has been also badly hit especially sports clubs uh, because they can't of course uh, of course, they can't run because of uh, restrictions. And for example, only 10 people can gather, get together in one place. So obviously, it's going to affect the uh, sports clubs and the sports sector. But uh, for example, uh, because of the upcoming uh, Tokyo Olympics, the Olympic uh, qualification events are taking place. And uh, so the uh, athletes who qualified for the Olympics are allowed uh, the government to practice uh, without restrictions and they're allowed to travel abroad to take part in uh, some qualification events. Um, also, uh, there's one, there's a two sports uh, growing very fast in here. Uh, one is uh, uh, MMA or mixed, mixed martial sports. Uh, this sport is very really like a suited for us because we are traditionally very uh, warriors you know that we like to fight you know <laughs> everything so the mma is very like a good sport for us and we've been like increasing we've been very good at this and uh, actually in the ufc the ultimate fighting championship our mongolian guy uh 
signed a contract, I forgot his name. And also in the Asian uh, biggest uh, promotion, uh, one championship, there's uh, one guy who's doing really well. Uh, he's going to fight uh, this uh, 14th. So in five days, he's going to fight. So everybody's actually waiting, waiting for his fight. And the other sport is uh, actually e-sports, electronic sports. Uh, I don't know the reason, but we are also very good at e-sports, especially uh, Counter-Strike Global Offensive and uh, World of Warcraft and uh, other stuff. So these two sports, uh, these two new sports are gaining like popularity here. Uh, other traditional sports are badly hit, but as I hope that uh, in the May or July, June, things will get better. Well, I'll certainly say I hope they get better too. It's it is kind of uh, sad that we that the Olympics were postponed, and uh, obviously we Americans get very enthusiastic in our in, in our sort of involvement in in the Olympics. And although usually when I watch the Olympics, I'm I'm usually rooting for the Hungarian or Chinese athletes out there. And I and I find it's very interesting that. Uh, a lot of the sports that Mongolians are good at are, of course, uh, sports that would work very well for times of war, like fencing or archery, uh, wrestling, obviously. And I think, I think the wrestling is especially something I find uh, really, truly uh, heartening as, 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 a person who, as a person who's covered Mongolian history because, of course, we all have uh, some sort of familiarity with Kutlun. As we have mentioned here before, <laughs> and I and I thought that was uh, very uh, a good way to uh, keep all, all your ancestors in your heart and uh, make them very proud of you. Yeah, uh, it was actually mentioned in the secret history of Mongols that. Uh, and use the wrestling to uh, keep his hope. Also, there's a lot, there's a case in the uh, 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 in the secret history of Mongols that uh, Genghis Khan was uh, killed his political enemy by a wrestling match. So it's been part of our history since uh, every type of wrestling sports, not just judo. For example, like um, uh, sambo, judo, free wrestling, and uh, karate, and everything. So it, it, it has a uh, historical uh, connection with us. Wow, that that certainly uh, and that certainly makes you think. It's it it definitely shows that you guys really. I uh, know how to know how to do, especially all, all those uh, all those uh, various sports associated with martial arts, and I think that uh, it kind of actually brings a little bit into our next question. Uh, there are some representations of Mongols slash uh, step nomads in uh, popular media. I think you're probably uh, quite familiar with uh, Ghost of Tsushima, or perhaps recently I think there was a, a big uh, Disney adaptation of Mulan. Uh, how do you uh, think these representations um, 
do justice to your people if they do justice at all. Yeah, I did a reaction video to Costa Tsushima, which is about the Mongol invasion of Japan in the 12th century. I was actually uh, just happy to see that uh, uh, this set in the time of Mongol, set in the time of Mongol Empire. So I was just happy <laughs> to see a piece of our histories in this uh, big game. Uh, as for the game, they portrayed our uh, ancestors, uh, the generals, very well. I was very impressed by the visuals and all these uh, graphics. Um, as for the, the uh, language, you know, the soldiers and generals uh, talking in Mongolian, it wasn't really like a, uh, accurate. It was more like an inner Mongolian uh, accent. So I could understand them, but I could tell that this, uh, the guy who voiced the soldiers was not from Mongolia, but from Inner Mongolia. So that's the one thing I noticed. But other than that, it was very good game, very good visuals, graphics. Uh, of course, it's a, a game, so it's not that 100% like accurate. For example, the main antagonist, uh, the bad guy, is a Hotong Khan, the grandson of Chinggis, is a fictional character, and uh, but uh, I, I, actually, I, actually, I was actually happy to see that they portrayed our uh, people, portrayed our general in uh, this very cunning, cunning and very resourceful fighter. For example, in the start of the video, the Hotong Khan was like uh, killed his enemy, <laughs> like pulling a pouring oil and setting him on fire without fighting. So he was very like a cunning uh, general. This is very ac accurate description of our ancestors because uh, Mongols were known for their like unorthodox, very like a new, uh, innovative way of fighting. So they just, uh, for example, they use uh, different kinds of tactics uh, and strategies to defeat their enemy, not just uh, one traditional one or two methods. They just uh, adapt as they go, you know, learn as they go. For example, when you first they uh, first encountered the uh, big walls and castles, they just uh, learned and they just captured the people from that area and asked them how the previous fights uh, went and they just learned from the other people and so it's very adaptable way. I'm just very impressed by this game developers, how they portrayed our ancestors, this cunning and resourceful nature. Uh, as for the uh, Mulan uh, movie, it's very controversial because, um, <laughs> you know, uh, Mulan is actually about Xiongnu, uh, uh, the people precedes the Genghis Khan, before mm -hmm. the Genghis Khan, Xiongnu people. So, as you know, the main hero, Mulan, is like killed hundreds and thousands of uh, warriors like uh, with the one shot so it's kind of a very inaccurate way you know because it's not based on history it's a cartoon but uh, some people in our country was very pissed very angry about that fight at that uh, scene because you know <laughs> nobody wants to see that our, our descendants 
Yeah, I can get that. It's, uh, and the, obviously, Mulan uh, uh, belongs to one of those um, very amorphous uh, sort of dark ages of sorts in Chinese history, where we're, um, we're, we're sure that the Chinese people were there, but whether we were sure what was happening to them is another story entirely. And in many ways, I would argue that in many ways, we, we, we didn't know. And I think within the context of uh, Chinese history, the Mulan sort of actually shows up, uh, at least in some, at least in the historical sense, uh, sometime after the Three Kingdoms period. So that makes a lot of history even more amorphous because that's basically just legends and people performing, uh, people described as performing almost uh, superhuman stunts. And that obviously makes the history uh, and people look a little quizzically. And uh, I find that I found that uh, your reaction to Ghost of Tsushima very interesting because uh, one one of the things about Mongol history is that like it is often depicted that the invasions of Japan were a complete another disaster in many ways. The Mongols uh, were were described as foolish and perhaps underestimated their adversaries, but I think in many ways uh, it's uh, it's a sort of different thing. It's it gets more complicated, obviously, because the Mongols. Uh, I think, especially, I think for the second invasion, they actually uh, they actually planned the invasion of Japan out and tried to make the make the best of a complicated situation that, in many ways, uh, was something that was was something that really wasn't an easy one for them, and it, it is quite interesting that. I think, in some ways, it might be a credit to the Mongols' brilliance that essentially the Japanese were saved big time by a giant storm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, there's a lot of talk about this game in the, in the gaming community. And, uh, so, their opinion was also similar to mine, and they praised the gameplay and graphics. Um, also, some people were uh, unimpressed by the fact that the Mongols were speaking uh, English or, and they, they, they were not speaking Mongolian, but other than that, I was very impressed by this game. As for the other movies uh, made about Mongolia, I also like the Marco Polo series uh, and also the series about the especially about the Mongol people. And uh, I wish that uh, the Hollywood would make a movie about uh, Great Mongol Empire, especially the uh, Batohan uh, conquest of Europe and Russia, Russian conquest of uh, Russia, because it, there's a lot of interesting fights and there's a lot of uh, very good generals in Mongolian history. So I wish that Western media would focus on these conquests and these military campaigns. Uh, some of them were very clever and there's a lot of like military tactics and strategies still used for today. And especially, for example, uh, during the Mongol conquest of Russia and the Cuban Rus, uh, there was a lot of like uh, difficulties because of the weather and the Russian weather is of course very difficult for any enemy. I think Germans uh, know that. <laughs> but, uh, the Mongol people uh, 
uh, overcome that difficulties and uh, actually conquered Russia in winter. So there's a lot of uh, interesting topics to cover for uh, Hollywood. So I wish that they could make a movie about, maybe serious about this, uh, this piece of history. I th I think in some ways I uh, I would definitely agree with uh, that sort of sentiment because it often feels like there are there are certain uh, stories in history that are ripe for entertaining an audience and then it just doesn't make it to the big screen and I often feel like this that this is the sort of story that would make audiences just like go in awe and that obviously really would warm my heart because there we historians are often used to uh, reacting to some not so great movies as i would say and i think especially i we would be able to actually uh, depict uh, mongolian history in a much better light than we have had in previous years because i i think there is actually a, there's actually a very old movie uh, starring uh, john wayne uh, i think it's known as like the great han or something like that, and um, this is, um, and unfortunately, John Wayne is playing Chinggis Khan. So, I, as you can, as you can notice, it's not very respectful, I think, to Mongolian culture. Yeah. And, uh, I, and I, and I think, like with obviously the more informed perspective of more Mongolians around the world, and obviously with greater technology. I think we can bring uh, stories like that of Genghis Khan or Manduhai or Kutlun to a much bigger audience and and uh, get people to love Mongolian history in the ways that you and I do. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, that actually makes me think a little bit on our next question. Uh, you have spoken on the traditional nomadic herding life that is most commonly associated with your people and have lived it for much of your childhood. How does it function today and how do you think it's changing? I grew up in the countryside, so I have a special connection with uh, this kind of uh, lifestyle, the nomadic uh, pastoral lifestyle. And uh, actually now I think 30% of uh, the population is nomadic herders and uh, uh, we have almost 50 or 60 million uh, livestock and uh, actually the nomadic pastoral herder, nomadic pastoral lifestyle is uh, our culture because we've been always been like uh, nomadic herders since ancient times. So everything is uh, Everything about our culture is connected to this uh, lifestyle, our like, clothing, food, cuisine, and uh, literature, arts, and everything is connected to it. Um, so I, I, uh, I think that we have to protect this lifestyle because it has this uh, unique aspect that um, no, nowhere can be found, uh, especially, for example, in this time, the Organization is growing, and every people are more and more people are moving to city and uh, living the settled life. So I think uh, I can say that we are the last, uh, truly last nomadic pastoral elders because in other countries uh, like us, they become urbanized, and so we are like last uh, nomadic nation. So. Um, my, from my perspective, the nomadic, nomadic pastoral uh, lifestyle is very eco-friendly lifestyle because 
you have to rely on the nature to sustain your life. So you have to, for example, uh, if, if your uh, livestock don't have uh, grass to graze, then your life is ruined. So you have to you have to protect it. It's, it's a necessity. You have to uh, maintain this uh, uh, eco-friendly lifestyle. You have to protect it so that your animals can have uh, enough grass to graze. So so when people are talking about eco-friendly lifestyle, you have to save your uh, recycle your waste and everything like that. But if you if you look at our lifestyle, it's uh, just a pure hundred percent eco-friendly and uh, it's a best example of uh, living in harmony with nature so i have to i, I just uh, want to protect and uh, promote this kind of lifestyle to uh, younger generation so i i was born in the early early 90s so my generation is grew up with uh, uh, this uh, traditional lifestyle and then also experience this uh, growth of technology and uh, modern uh, uh, social media. So uh, I want just for this young generation, especially uh, people born in the 2000s, to uh, connect with this culture. Because there's this uh, cultural uh, revolution is going on because, for example, Korean K-pop and Japanese J-pop and American media, Hollywood, and then Chinese media, Russian media, to get a hold of our cultural, trying to control, trying to gain the the cultural aspect. So, so in this kind of confusing times, we have to hold our ground and just protect this kind of lifestyle. Yeah, that's my stance. Wow, that. That's obviously uh, a stance I can definitely quite sympathize with. Uh, I think through Kashailash, as I mentioned before, we Hungarians have only just started to rediscover the lifestyle that Mongols have uh, preserved for hundreds of years. And obviously, this uh, lifestyle is a very difficult thing to keep as uh, to keep as the world is getting more modern and in some ways perhaps getting a bit warmer. And I think that makes uh, often people think like we should uh, leave this style and go to the cities and try to make the best of it there. But also, in many ways, the, the development of the city, as wonderful as it is, uh, often accelerates uh, the, the decrease of the nomadic lifestyle. And as, a, and as a person who loves history, I want to see that lifestyle go on for as long as it can. So obviously, I'd love to see more of it i'd like to talk more of it of course on this podcast but one of the things i've always wanted to do especially after uh, spending years and years of reading about mongols in the history books i've always wanted to uh, take a step into actual mongolia and experience the people down there i've heard a lot of uh, good things about uh, mongolian hospitality of course uh, mongolian cuisine and i certainly would love to uh, I'll be right around there and perhaps uh, engage in a conversation with you in person in the future. <laughs> yeah, you are uh, welcome here anytime. <laughs> that really warms my heart. And 
Um, it makes me really think I should. I also uh... want to add something. Oh. Yeah, go on. <laughs> yeah. Also, the I I forgot to mention the climate effect of the climate change in our country in our uh, nomadic lifestyle because of the climate change and also the environmental issues. More, uh, more and more nomadic people are abandoning their lifestyle and heading to the city. This is actually the, one of the biggest concerns for me because of the desertification and also the uh, other environmental issues. Uh, more people are abandoning their lifestyle and heading to the city. So I just wanted to mention this uh, issue. Yeah, yeah I, I think that can often be in many ways uh, quite disconcerting because Obviously, it means that the nomadic lifestyle is becoming, in some ways, a little bit less viable, and not necessarily because it, in some ways, has somehow failed on its own merits, but because, in many ways, uh, the the world has the world has acted upon it. And I think, obviously, the world can act in many good ways. Obviously, it, if the if the world hadn't acted upon it to. Uh, bring us all these vibrant technologies, maybe we wouldn't be talking today, but also in many ways I can see that there are uh, difficulties with seeing how sometimes seeing how sometimes like the nomadic herders uh, are unable to sustain like the, the way they are the way they have been living for centuries and this is through no fault of their own. And I think that's uh, something that I would definitely uh, like to and get people to understand on a more fundamental level. Okay, so is there another question? I do believe I have one. Uh, yeah, actually, it it is uh unfortunately our last question, and uh, and I don't know how much uh, time I have left. Anyways, uh since our world is moving uh, very quickly and obviously I have a, I, I have elderly grandparents that help take care of in some ways but uh, but before I uh, send you on your merry way I think uh, I have to ask a very important question to our <laughs> for you uh, where can people uh, find your work and uh, how can they also uh, support it <laughs> uh, yeah my YouTube channel is called uh, real Mongolia so you can uh, search my channel and subscribe. That would be very helpful. And uh, so right now I don't have that much just followers, but I have a plan to uh, uh, like to interview uh, people, Mongol people, and also I am uh, planning to uh, interview, planning to conduct interview in the streets of Lombardy, so that I can uh, give the uh, Normal everyday people opinion to the public, and uh, yeah, I have a lot of plans to produce content. So uh, I think actually this lockdown will be helpful because so I can stay in my home and focus on my uh, uh, contents. So I have a lot of uh, contents coming up. So if you would just subscribe, that would be very nice. <laughs> well. I'll uh, certainly encourage everybody to go onto uh, Byra's channel uh, and give and give them their subscription. I'll also be including uh, Byra's uh, channel link in the show notes. 
and also I, I've been uh, thinking about this a little bit. I I do still have uh, some pretty good contact with uh, Jackmeister. He actually has his own YouTube channel, and that's how, how I've been interacting with him and how he's been able to uh, enlighten me on so much of Mongolian history. And one of my big thinkings that ever since I came into contact with you is that I have to get you and Jackmeister to talk and, and, and interact because I think that would be a great way for both of you to learn about uh, the history of, of Mongolia. <laughs> yeah, because I'm kind of a history nerd, so I think we can lot of to talk about. <laughs> I'll definitely have to uh, DM you his email uh, as uh, soon as I'm finished with this. <laughs> so. Okay, so um, so do we have another? Uh, I, I'm I'm uh, I don't I have nothing nothing to do this evening, so we can talk about other other topics if you want. Um. I actually I didn't have anything I really come to mind at this point and unfortunately my schedule is going to be a little bit more booked a little, little later on but obviously I will make sure that if I have any any free time in the future to talk to you I I I will make that time because I, you are the first Mongol that I have found and brought to my show and so I hope to bring you as often as I can And uh, also, yeah, Hungary is also one of my favorite countries, so I want to visit one day. Oh yeah, it's a it's a very good country to visit. Although the situation has gotten a bit more complicated since the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. So you are welcome here anytime. Yep, and I can assure you that you will be very welcome with me in America or in Hungary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So, Bayerstam uh, is goodbye. Uh, Bayerstam, and I uh, hope we all have some sort of uh, wellness in this COVID-19 pandemic, as uh, Blue Heaven wills it. <laughs> I hope everyone will be safe and uh, good luck with uh, everything with your life. All right. And there we go. And that is uh, Bayara, the great Mongolian journalist. <laughs> if you like this segment of the Mongols podcast, be sure to check me out on Substack, TikTok, or YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter. You can also follow me on Tumblr, and uh, and check out my podcast where all podcasts are found and support me on Patreon and PayPal. After all that, just have a good day and be safe as blue heaven wills it.